All right, hello everyone. Welcome to the Classroom Critics. Um, tonight we're discussing uh, The General, 1926, Buster Keaton, of course. And uh, this is our first silent film, guys. Am I wow. correct by saying that? Yep, I think you are. So uh, I'm excited about this. Um, what's not to like about this movie? <laughs> Don't get me started. This, if you had to say to me, Walt, what is your all-time favorite movie, period, hands down, it is The General. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I saw this movie, I don't know if I was eight or nine, uh, no context, just it was put on. And I was utterly absorbed by it. There was not, I mean, as a kid with, with, you know, a young kid, it just saw that this movie made so much sense to me and it was so beautifully done. Uh, Of course, as I've seen it over the years, I've I've come to appreciate its technical expertise as well. But uh, I just think that it's so, if it's simple enough to be fully comprehensible to a child, then I think it's a great story and a great, a great film. Yeah. I, it's funny when I think of the greatest films or whatever, I almost, I almost think of it in terms of like um, eras. So I have my favorite silent film. It's kind of like how I think of baseball players. You know, you, you have like eras of, um, you know, the dead ball era and, you know, maybe it's the wrong way to think about it. Um, but certainly this has to be one a or one B when it comes to, mm-hmm. for me, the silent film era. This is a, this is a definitely a Titan. Uh, what about you, Andrew? You, uh, you share. This, the, uh, this is actually the first time I've seen it. Uh, so I, I of course have known about it by reputation, but I've never actually seen it. I've seen bits and pieces, a, a scene here or a scene there. But if I, if I can recall, this is the first time I've watched it through from beginning to end. And I just watched it earlier today. Actually, I was, you know, it's it's a great movie. It's it's a lot of fun, and it's 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 just. I think it's a brilliant film. Mm-hmm. So this wasn't well. This wasn't really accepted in its time, right? right. Uh, I, I was doing some research uh, just before we, we we started recording, and I was I was astounded at how poorly it was received. Yeah, I, I never got around to reading any of the criticism of the time. Do either of you know what? people had against it. I mean, why didn't it resonate then? I know there was something about, you know, the, the vulgar jokes because of course the, the woman is treated undignified uh, in, in a manner. And also there is that gag at the end during the battle where the soldier gets the sword in the back and they, you know, it's a, it's a set up joke. It, it, you know, and, and uh, I, it was criticized for that on one level. And what I read was um, somebody criticized it for saying it wasn't funny. Um, Keaton wasn't funny and making comedy out of war is not, not appropriate or something so, to that effect. So may, I mean, I, one of my overall takeaways with this film is the, even though it's epic in scope, especially for its time, so much of it is so beautifully subtle. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I, I think a lot of the subtlety, especially the, comedic subtlety it just must have been lost on the audiences back then or the critics when you have some of his peers back in the day much of their comedy was just so broad and you know i I never like to be into the whole chaplin versus keaton thing i like them both um but i think when you're watching chaplin you know i think you're very much watching a you know silent film comedy style Mm -hmm. comedy which is fantastic but I think a lot of Keaton's comedy translates, its subtlety translates better, and I'm sure we'll, we'll be getting into that. So I think a lot of that, what must have been, that's the only thing I can really wrap my mind around, is that it must have been lost, a lot of the humor must have been lost on 
some of the critics and audiences back then because it was might've been overly subtle. Mm-hmm. That's where I think that, um, you know, he was ahead of his time. Uh, right. You know, here's a guy coming into an era where you have, you know, the Keystone cops and you have a lot of films like that. And, and he says, I'm going to do an epic, but it's going to be a comedy epic. And he literally sets it against the backdrop of the American Civil War. He has these massive steam engines racing back and forth in the camera. And yet, you know, he, he he's constantly being controlled by objects that are either enormous or very, very small. He's being befuddled by those little things as well as by the big things. Yeah. And uh, it just seems like the whole universe is working against him. He can't even throw the wood onto the uh, right. train car without it falling off. And um, I, I think that people probably didn't know what to make of it. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was audacious. Yeah. Yeah. Even today we don't take comedy as seriously as we do other forms of drama. And, and it, this isn't comedy in the sense of ha-ha comedy. I found it much, as, as you said, Bill, much more subtle in that sense. That the, the, the character, um, Johnny Gray, that, that Keaton plays is this kind of everyman. There's nothing special about him. Yeah. And he becomes this heroic figure. Uh-huh, yep. It, yeah, just, I, whole, I like the whole kind of trope of, you know, I, we can kind of like relate this to other stories or films, kind of like the idea of the, the poor underdog schnook character who's just kind of like caught in this massive, uh, you know, obviously world changing event. And he's just trying to get by. Um, and he goes on this whole quest, this whole epic journey, not necessarily for any noble cause at all. Um, He's not trying to be a hero at all. He just wants his his girl. You know, yeah. he just want, he's doing he's doing all this not for the cause of the South, uh, the Confederacy. He's doing this for his uh, quote unquote other love. Which, by the way, um, we can get into technique and everything in you know actual film innovations. And I think we have to eventually address the you know some of the great editing work. And I think one of my favorite edits is really early on where we see. Um, yeah, the, the title card where it tells us, I've written here, there were two loves of his life, his engine and dot, dot, dot. And then it cuts to Annabelle's photo. Yeah. I mean, this is something, you know, we can take for granted seeing, uh, seeing an edit like that. You know, it's just something if we saw in a movie now, we'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, we, we, don't, we wouldn't even notice it. But that's film language that didn't exist really Um or at least it wasn't common during that particular time. So I think a lot of the editing that we see in this film just pushed the grammar of, of storytelling, of, of cinematic storytelling, kind of like in the same way, um, you know, Citizen Kane did yeah. whatever, 20 years later. Um, so I don't know where I was going with that other than it's just the idea that, you know, he, this guy is just caught up in this, this whole adventure, not necessarily for any noble reason, but because he wants to, uh, to 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 find his other love, and I, one joke, one gag that you talk about subtlety, I just love. Um, in fact, it's it's something that you'd see perhaps like in the context of uh, almost like a Ray Romano kind of joke, where um, at the beginning you have uh, the father, Annabelle's father, come in saying, you know, I'm I'm going to go fight this war, I'm you know, and then the son comes in and you know uh, I'm going to go enlist immediately. And, the, and so they come, they go out all noble and heroic and Annabelle turns over to, um, to Johnny, right? Yeah. And he's sitting there on the couch and he kind of looks up like, what? 
<laughs> you know, um, and that's 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 kind of like a, you know, it's kind of like a joke you you that re- would really translate well into modern day yeah. comedy. So I think he writes a lot of the rules of filming this sort of thing, um, and, and to go along with editing and camera, he he would take a, a camera, and it wasn't just a, a passive recorder of the action; it was part of the action. He would mm-hmm. put them on. He found parallel train tracks in in Washington State, and the camera is following along. You know, the trains are going 25, 30 miles an hour. But the scene that stands out to me that I think justifies what I'm saying is he's writing the rules. Is if you think about this film. All I see when I watch this film is that Steven Spielberg, when he made Raiders of the Lost Ark, borrowed heavily from this film. You have the, the plucky hero who doesn't give up. You have the girl who is the object of his affection, but indirect because he set out to save his train, not the girl. And he, he never stops, no matter how much he's beaten down. So um, I just quickly want to, if I can, compare two scenes to say what I'm talking about. And this goes to editing, Bill. When you have an action sequence, I always can't stand it when, you know, say 30 people are attacking the hero and the camera focuses on the hero. So the attackers are waiting off camera to attack him one at a time. It's a trope that people make a lot of fun of. But if you're going to do an action sequence with a lot of elements in it, um, you have got to film it in such a way and cut it and edit it in such a way that all of those elements are existing in the same place in the same time. And they're not just waiting in the wings to show up. If you take the sequence in the general with the cannon that's the, the mortar that's behind him. And he's, yeah. he's trying to, you know, shoot it at the other train, but it, it hits a bump and it's pointing right at him. And he's, he's stuck between the trains. Compare that to the um, scene in Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, when he's trying to get on the plane and Marion is locked in the cockpit and he's fighting the big giant bald Nazi and there's propellers and there's the, the truckload of Germans approaching. And both of those scenes check in on all the various elements at play to constantly keep them in the same time frame. Uh, it's not like that cannon is just going to fire when it's convenient. It, you know, he goes between the cannon to him, to his foot, to the train they're chasing, back to the cannon. And, and I think that that was the template for filming effectively those kinds of scenes. And the editing there is just tremendous. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Sorry. I, uh, no, I think, I think Keaton was one of the two editors on the film as well. So not only did he did he write it based on a, a memoir uh, that came out, you know, I think two or three decades uh, prior to that, but you know he had a hand in directing. It really is his film in, in, in the true sense of the word. Yeah, I, I read too you know, to touch on that that the guy who was involved in that chase was actually a consultant on the film. Really? Yeah. yeah. Um, I like what Roger Ebert says uh, on his in his review um, in, in the great film section on his uh, website, which if you know, you're familiar with um, his database of these um, reviews that he accumulated over the years. He, he pretty much touches on every great film. And uh, I like what he says here towards the end of the review. Of course he praises the film, but he talks about here. One good point he makes today. I look at Keaton's work more often than any other silent films. They have such a graceful perfection, such a meshing of story, character, and episode that they unfold like music. Hmm. Although they're filled with gags, you can rarely catch Keaton writing a scene around a gag. I think that's key right there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, instead, the laughs emerge from the situation. He was the still small suffering center of the hysteria of slapstick. Um, 
in an age when special effects were in their infancy, we got to remember that. I mean, they didn't exist really. Yeah. In uh, a stunt, quote unquote stunt, often meant actually doing on the screen what you appeared to be doing. <laughs> Keaton was ambitious and fearless. Um, he had a house collapse around him. He swung over a waterfall to rescue a woman he loved. He fell from trains. And he always did it in character, playing a solemn and thoughtful man who trusts his own ingenuity. So why, uh, I guess one question kind of, we can kind of throw out there, which Ebert kind of addresses here. Why, um, why Stoneface? I mean, I, I, even though he's called the, you know, one of the great Stoneface and he has this kind of one expression, I, I think for some reason it, it, it still conveys so much emotion somehow. It, it's still there. It, how does well, that he, he blinks. He, he's a master of the, the time blink. Yeah. Yeah. You know, can you imagine, though, take, take little jokes. Uh, okay, in, in the general, there's a scene towards the end where everyone is, is uh, doing their thing, and he gets back on the train, and the union officer that's unconscious wakes up, and he turns around, and he sees them. And, and he just, you know, he does a, a stone face take, and then he gets his gun, and he... he indicates the gun to the guy. Can you imagine what that, how that joke would thud if there was mugging in it? Yeah. If, if he was doing these giant like facial takes. Yeah. The, it's the, it's a minimalism. I think that, that, uh, that makes it work. Absolutely. It, it goes back to your point earlier, Bill, of, of the subtlety of it. He's, he's a genius at subtlety. Yeah. Yeah. He sure is. And, um, yeah, I just have here one of the notes. I, you know, I usually have a uh, note sheet as I'm watching these for our shows, and one of the, just one thing I kept writing: expressionless yet emotional. Yeah, expressionless yet emotional. Uh, and uh, it's almost like you could convey what you want onto him. Um, and he, there is definitely an everyman quality to him as well. You know, which I think really, really helps the film resonate with. You know, we all love underdog characters. We all love, as I said earlier, that that schnook that seems to be um, in way over his head. Mm-hmm. And one thing I, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the Kurosawa film, Hidden Fortress. You know, it's kind of like this, um, the protagonists in the film are these two uh, medieval slaves. And there's all this, you know, they're, they're in the context of this whole great war that's happening around them. And this, I just think it's a really interesting way, just seeing all this, turmoil from the characters who are not meant um for much just again just these uh lowly characters the un- these underdogs in fact that was one of um george lucas's first kind of approaches to the star wars story where it, it, you, you kind of see a remnant of that in the, in the story where you have the first whatever 20 minutes of the film it's from the perspective of the two droids yeah so there's this whole galactic war but it's from their perspective of course, the story's handed over to Luke eventually, but um, I just think that really, I think it's one reason why this story is so, uh, seems to be so, so timeless because we're just, we're just rooting for this guy. To, uh, what, do you, what do you, either of you make of him deciding to tell it from the Confederate point of view? I, um, I think it was uh, the story. I think he was staying true to the story. Um, and you can see evidence to that throughout the film um, is his sets and his composition of things. He, you know, he based a lot of his shots, especially in the battle of rock river bridge at the end on, on Matthew Brady's 
battlefield photographs yeah. from the Civil War. And I think that he, the idea was he he wanted to remain true to the story, and uh, and that was that was what the character was. He was a Confederate. Yeah, the whole idea of uh, you know the Confederate soldier, the the what's the word I'm looking for? The um, oh, I got the uh, running out of time signal here. So we've got a few minutes, then we're going to end part one. But uh, you know, the nobility of the Confederate soldier, I think, really is a key ingredient. The, the fact that he is not that, mm-hmm. I think, makes it kind of interesting. The fact and then that, that to that point, there's that really great scene towards the end where he has the Union coat on, and then he has to switch it in, into the Confederate. Coat. I love that scene. That's yeah. It's uh, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure we'll get to that eventually. But just uh, <laughs> he's literally in a coat uh, that's too big for him. Too big for him, right? And uh, yeah. So yeah. Well, getting back to your point about the the moving train or trying to film something that, that I don't, I don't even know as I was watching this, I'm all, you know, I, I guess one of the curses of being a film studies teacher, you're always trying to notice cinematography where sometimes you just want to enjoy the story. And, what, and while I'm watching this, one of the things that kept sticking out to me is like, how in the world is that camera not shaking like hell? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I can't tell you. I'm sure. I'm sure that was something that was through trial and error. But you would you think with the the gigantic cameras that they had back then, I doubt hydraulics existed with camera work. <laughs> I don't know how uh, they were able to get some of those shots without the camera bouncing everywhere, and, and let alone just you know ending up not smashed on the ground. Yeah, I wonder how many um, outtakes there were uh, <laughs> of the film, you know, to, to get, you'd have to find, you know, the very smoothest part of the track and you'd have to coordinate the trains to be running at, you know, pretty much the same speed. Um, but, but back to the point of um, the camera there being not a passive part of the action, there, there's a wonderful scene where um, the bad guys are chasing him on the return journey and they've decided to sneak through the, the car in front of them that's, that's on the back of Buster's train. And the camera follows them climbing on, and then it goes faster, and it, you see him pulling the pin on the coupling, and then the train pulls away. It's a beautifully composed shot, but again, like you said, Bill, how do they get it so smooth? I mean, you know, that's not even traveling at the same speed. No, no, it's I mean it's a technical feat for its time, and uh, I'm sure there are explanations that we <laughs> we haven't researched ourselves, but. Um, you know, they were making, filmmakers were making this up as they went along, you know, and we just, we really have to uh, tip our hats to just earlier generations of filmmakers who really made this up in real time, you know, and I'm sure as Keaton was was shooting this movie, he had to kind of invent techniques and uh, practical tools that just made made this possible. You know, the whole idea, like, you know, with the train um, coming off the uh, bridge towards the end, um, I guess he had six cameras rolling during that time because you couldn't exactly have take two, right? So... <laughs> Got to get it right. Oh, that, that's yeah. such a great battle sequence. So, yeah, there's really a shot is. with the, the musket smoke coming through the trees as the soldiers are coming down. And if you watch that sequence, you know, after the train crash, when the battle becomes really pitched... 
one of the trees explodes and breaks in half. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I read, I think I actually read this in Ebert's uh, column, that that train is still at the bottom of that river. Hmm. Still there. Really? Yeah. My God. How in the world, <laughs> how in the world hasn't been fit, fished out and brought to the Smithsonian? Yeah, right. Or some billionaire film buff, you know, get a crane and get that out of there. And put yeah, why, the- isn't it, is it, why isn't it not at Skywalker Ranch or something? <laughs> Right, just like sitting there in the desert or something. I mean, London Bridge is in the desert in Arizona somewhere, yeah. right? Or, or, or New Mexico, something like that. <laughs> That's just a massive, beastly piece of steel. I don't know what it would take, but, uh, yeah. you know, that, that, that's a really, you know, again, goes to the scale of the thing. What are we going to do? Well, let's crash a real train off a bridge at the end. Yeah. That's incredible. Uh-huh. And it's still, seeing that scene still is awe-inspiring to me. Um, and, and then you remember when they did it, it's just, cause the film doesn't feel dated at all to me. No, 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 not at all. I've watched silent film comedies too, where sometimes, um, because modern audiences aren't used to watching silent films and the, and the setup and the payoff that a lot of times in, in a lot of films, those they hadn't quite got the timing down. The gags were, were so fast. You didn't really catch the action. But if you notice every one of Keaton's gags is, set up so that you following what's happening when when he throws her into the train car when she's in the bag yeah you see the soldiers behind them all throwing their stuff in then you see with that massive box and you know what's going to happen and it's still funny gosh (laughs) yeah yeah i love that and when he's such a little guy it's just you know it's it's yeah Yeah, well he cuts his teeth on the vaudeville stage and you know that's probably where he worked out the stone face persona um and my favorite, absolute favorite Keaton anecdote is um, that he, do you know where he got his nickname from? No. Uh, Harry Houdini. When he was, really? yeah, they saw him take a fall and, and Houdini said, that's a buster, which was a slang term back then. And they, cause he was part of their traveling show, the, the Keaton's traveling show. And so the, the name stuck. Yep. Wow. <laughs> All right, guys, I'm going to um, end part one here. We're going to end it. We're going to be cut off here by zoom, but um end of part one so we'll be uh we'll be back and we'll talk about uh who are the scenes that really stick out to us and of course the legacy of keaton himself and um we'll be back all right everyone we are back so um one thing that i noticed that i this is something that's stuck out to me is the quick editing, you know, obviously for an action film, even for its time, there was uh, a lot of quick cuts, quick editing, rapid rhythm to the film. And I, I just imagine for the time, and I'm just speculating here that this must have been kind of like a um, an overload of the senses for audiences back then. You know, it, if you watch a lot of silent films, uh, you can go through an entire scene where the camera is just fixed on the subject and the narrative. Well, you know, you might have the close up, then the establishing shot again, but here we have just, you know, almost a, kind of a, a, a modern level of, or, or amount of cutting in, with a lot of the scenes. And that kind of stuck out to me is, am I, 
magnifying that in my mind or is that no, I, I, I got the same thing it's almost miami vice-esque you know with its rapid cuts uh, in, in in the way that miami vice changed the way we watch film and television in that in that way and it, it's got the whole film going very quickly the film's only about 79 minutes long or so so it's not a long film anyway but it goes really really quickly um i think one of the longest sequences is that first sequence um, when he gets off the train and goes into uh, Annabelle's uh, house. And, and, you know, that runs a little bit slow, but then things start picking up, um, maybe to mirror the movement of the, of the uh, everything that's happening, the, the train on its uh, speeding on its way out of control, things like that. It's such a, there's such a juxtaposition throughout. Uh, first of all, like I said earlier, large and small, these, these massive yeah. objects and these little tiny things. So when you, you go to that, you, you talked about his minimalist expression and, and the story is actually minimalist as well, where, and everything within it is, is complicated and fast. You know, it's very much just, you know, you establish the character, the train's going in one direction, there's a stop, and then the train's going in the other direction, and then there's a battle. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole, yeah. that's, that's the beats of the film. But, uh, but within those simple elements is such complexity and grandeur. So it's, it's really a... I think you're right. That's that's probably something that that the audiences were not expecting. How, what, what to make of this? Especially when you describe the film, you know, if you just sort of give someone a, you know, a summary of of this, uh, you know, of the premise of this movie, the fact that it's a comedy, you wouldn't necessarily immediately label it as a comedy. You know, it would, mm-hmm. if you were to describe this to someone back then through word of mouth, I mean, I would I would think that it would just sort of come across as kind of like just like a costume melodrama, you know, but it's almost like Keaton took the genre of the costume, the mm-hmm. costume genre, uh, genre and just sort of said, you know what? No, it's going to be a kind of like a ridiculous action comedy instead. So just sort of like uh, breaking the boundaries there in, in his own way. And this may have been why it was so poorly received at the time that the people who were going into the film didn't, ex- you know, they got something they weren't expecting. Right. And, you know, we know that that's not comfortable and maybe they felt in, in some way uh, shortchanged. Sure. And we're, you know, the civil war was in living memory too. Right. Right. So the, the, you know, the, I don't know, the, the, the concept of, um, the, the, you know, nobility and, and, and all the attributes of, uh, of war warfare and what it means to be a soldier this might have been what they were expecting when they were walking into this movie yeah. and not of, just any war the civil war oh yeah no it's it, it, it's doubly personal in that sense yeah. i found really uh, the, the whole time i was watching this i'm i'm and this goes back to my probably my literary training i'm thinking of faulkner and those kind of country gentlemen that were defeated but yet still uh noble sure sure so maybe that hurt people Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say maybe that irked people who were coming yeah. in expecting a a movie that sort of wax poetic about uh, courage under fire and grace and stuff that you'd see years later in Gone with the Wind. <laughs> right, right, and, and a defeated army ultimately. Right. Sorry, well, no, that's right. I just need to say it just occurred to me uh, all the uh, all the Southern officers and generals are these white haired aristocrats yeah. and all the northern generals and soldiers are all these dark bearded scruffy looking characters you know sort of reminded me of the so you have the robert e lees and the and the right. uh, um ulysses grants 
And I noticed how how straight and tall the Southern generals and, and colonels were. They all stood up very, very straight and proper. Right. Yep. Yep. A scene that sticks out to me. I love the scene when he's under the table. Yeah. For hours. <laughs> And uh, I just love how it's such a crucial scene. So much hinges on that, right? What he, what he hears in that conversation is a pivotal scene, right? And he's getting kicked in the face. Yeah. <laughs> burned by a cigar. Uh, burned by a cigar. <laughs> burned by the cigar. And I just love how, I mean, talk about an interesting uh, point of view shot there where you get the camera looking through that cigar hole, right? I mean, that's yeah. just cool. You see her, and then you and then you see his eyeball blinking. Yeah, from <laughs> but just very simple comedy. Just this deadpan face, Buster Keaton's deadpan face, just getting kicked by these. Uh, you know, and I think it's something symbolic there too. The little guy getting kicked under the table, and um, and I just, I just, I, I got a kick. Uh, I, I almost that pun was not intended, <laughs> folks. I got a kick out of that scene. Pretty good one. <laughs> I'm always struck. Uh, the the portrayal of Annabelle Lee, the, the actress is Marion Mack. And, uh, you know, she's not a damsel in distress. She, she does have to be rescued, but she partakes in the action um, and she gets her share of lumps. Uh, you know, she gets the heavy cargo thrown on her. Uh, if you watch the scene where he's getting her out of the bag, she smacks her uh, ankles on one of the boxes and she's nailed by that water tower, which in the documentary I read, she didn't expect it. That was unexpected. Um, she ties the rope across that, that has the trees that, that, that inhibit the train. And, and she, uh, she participates. So she's not just sitting there as a, as a, an object to be rescued. And, uh, I thought that was fun. She's uh -huh. a very strong character. Yeah. Sure. sure. Yeah. She's in, uh, the prototype of Marion Ravenwood. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> Take it back. I, and, and the scene that just kills me every time is when, uh, um, she's supposed to be putting fire into the, into the engine. And she, uh, uh, she hands him a little stick and he looks at it and he chokes her and then he kisses her. <laughs> I'm not condoning choking women. I just no, think that but, yeah. the way they show, you know, his frustration and his love at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And I have a note here. It's towards the end. I think we're, um, I have a note here. I love when he, Keaton clubs the soldier outside in the rain. <laughs> yeah. I just when you're funny, you're funny, you know. And yeah. just that simple act was just hilarious. And I, you know, I've heard it said recently that you can't learn, you can't necessarily learn comedy. You just you're either funny or you're not. You know, it's one of those attributes you're you're born with. And I think he just he just sort of had it. His, his movements and his his falls are, are like a signature. Nobody quite did it like that. Yeah. And uh, and, and it was so realistic and um, and and just always had something in it that made it stand out. Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. For all of the stone face that we talk about, his comedy is very physical. Yeah. And you get a sense that he's not working for the laugh. Yeah. Where if you look if you look at a lot of comedic gags back in the day back during this time, you know I love Chaplin, but even with Chaplin, you have moments where you you can tell he's really trying to go like that. You know you can just sense that he's going for a laugh, but um, with Keaton, it's just sort of uh, it just blends mm -hmm. well, and it, it doesn't seem like he's efforting 
a lot for that for that laugh. It just happens naturally. It flows. It arises out of character. Um, yeah. You know, we saw early on his relationship with his train. You know, the, the film says he has two loves in his life, and he gives her the picture, a giant picture of the train with him in the front. But what makes me laugh in, in those little moments, like you're saying, uh, that arise out of character, is that, that he actually didn't know she was on the train. He was trying to get his train, and when she says, "You came, you came to rescue me," you can see he he, tes, he takes a moment. Where he's like, "Oh, I, I didn't," but then he pretends he did, and he starts to do these <laughs> grand. Oh, of course I did. <laughs> and again, it's just such a um, those those little moments that make you care about the characters, you know. Yeah, we have to keep we have to keep in mind too that a lot of these actors uh, during the silent era they they came up in the theater, they were schooled uh, with technique that required them to convey an act for people in the twentieth row, right. And here we have Keaton, right, where it's sort of like he is understanding what the camera can do, where uh, just a little subtle, as you pointed out earlier, Walter, just a little subtle movements with his eyes, where he realizes he's not, he doesn't need to act for the 20th row. He's acting for this, um, you know, for this camera. It's, it's obviously the, the cinema is a very much more intimate experience. And uh, it, he certainly understands that. And so um, it's, it's not this, this grand type of performance that's overly broad. It's just very, very subtle. Uh, but I tell you, if you look, uh, most frames of this film could be paused and, and the, the framing is just spectacular, whether it's yeah. a, a straight shot showing the perspective of the tracks or showing the, um, the, the military bases or the train station, just what a what a painter's eye, and I'm sure the cinematographer or whomever was there had a had a hand in that. But you could tell that it was just a unified vision. Right, right, yeah. Were you guys as moved as I was when at you know towards the end where we have the um, you know the victory parade where, where they're all coming in and being hailed by 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 the folks in the town, and then you have Keaton there who's the hero mm -hmm. being largely ignored. Was that? Was that something that moved you? I mean, I found that to be completely heart wrenching in a way. But it's it speaks true to the film. I think I I, I would have enjoyed the film much less if he would have been carried on the shoulders of of some of those people. That would have been too easy. That's true. So I think it's a testament to Keaton's you know genius to to play it that way because yep. he, he's the actor in the piece and he could have easily ended up the hero, but yep. he chooses to play that fall guy. I think that's brilliant, but you're right. I, I, I found it, you know, very heart wrenching. But he gets his reward because um, the, the two, the officer and the uh, adjunct that sign him in at the end are the same ones that refused him at the yeah. beginning. And then of course he gets what he wants and the old adage, be careful of what you wish for. He's trying to kiss Annabelle on the train and the soldiers keep coming by and he's got to keep saluting them. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Until he changes places and just, you know, <laughs> I, I, I just, I love the clever symmetry of you know he's asked at the end you know what what do you do you know and he says i'm a soldier yeah right is that that's what he says right and i think that's pretty pretty cool pretty moving well bill you brought up a point that i i, I hope to hear you speak to about when you show this to your classes and and you use the music to emphasize the moods yeah yeah so yeah it's always interesting when you show a silent film you know you 
I mean, obviously music, as we know, is a key ingredient to any film. And so one has to ask themselves, well, what, what were they hearing when they were watching this back then? What did the filmmaker want us to hear? And then you come into question, you, you get into this area, well, okay, was there a, was there a score? Was, was, what was the piano player, <laughs> what was he actually playing? Was, he, was there something intended for this? Um, so with this, I, I don't know if you guys, did you guys see the, let me ask you, which version of this did you see or what print did you see? Did, what, what, what was on the soundtrack as you were watching this, uh, this most recent time? I, uh, the, the, the copy on YouTube is the D is a Blu-ray print and right. has the original score. The original That's score. Yeah. Right. So for me that, you know, I always want to hear what's, what was original. You know, I think yeah. that's a big, a big part of it, but you never know what you're going to get when you throw on a silent film, depending on, uh, who's putting it out. You know, you could get something that was entirely done in, you know, decades later. And, but anyhow, um, so one, you know, so now and then, well, when I show this to um, to my students, I'll, I'll throw on different soundtracks during different scenes and just kind of express to them how important music is. And so you might play, you know, a more comedic uh, period piece from this time, and uh, obviously it'll come off much more lighthearted and funny. And but you can also put a, a dramatic score to it, and it, it suddenly becomes a uh, a drama. So I, I just found it. I, the kids find it interesting. I find it interesting just to show how important uh, music is and how it can literally change the, you know, what the film conveys. So I found that kind of interesting exercise. I'm interested I, uh, to hear how your students, how did they like the film? They like this. Um, they like the general. They seem to respond a little bit more to the kid. Um, and I'm not sure why, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure why I think, I think maybe, um, you know, some of the uh, socioeconomic stuff that's happening in the kid might speak to them a little bit more. Um, so I, I can't really tell you entirely why, but I seem to get more positive feedback or at least more engaged. It might go, it might also speak to the idea that you may have to see the general a couple times to really, to really get it, yeah. uh, to get all of it where the tramp might be something that you could sort of see once and, and you can kind of, you know, take away a lot from just that one viewing. Yeah. Andrew made a good point that it does, the, the opening section is fairly slow. Um, and Keaton does a, a good job of building up the character, his perseverance, his relationship and how, you know, what his motivation is. And so I found when I showed it to the kids, uh, of course their first reaction to a silent film is groaning and then, then right. it's black and white and it's groaning. They, they hate those two things. But we actually, I show that opening sequence and I talk about, you know, what do we learn? What do we know? And, and they start to realize, because silent films are out of their bailiwick, they start to realize, well, I'm, I'm getting this. I, I get what they're doing. And then once it starts into the chase sequence, I, I've usually, I've had very, it's always been very well received in my classes. The students really respond to physical humor. Um, and after a while, you know, a lot of students had told me it was their favorite film. Wow. Cool. Not every student, but a lot did. <laughs> Yeah, I find that students eventually they forget that it's silent. Yeah, you know, I get. I tell them at the beginning. I say, I guarantee you, if you roll with this for a few minutes, you're gonna you're gonna forget that this is a silent movie. Just just like when you're watching a film, a foreign film with subtitles. Yeah, you know, uh, you forget very quickly that you're 
you're reading. You just yeah. report it, you know, and you adjust. But you know, the, and a lot of these guys are very familiar with Rowan Atkinson's Mr. Bean character, which That's even true. though he's not silent, but he relies so much on the, the physical aspect of comedy. Sure, sure. A great face sure. for comedy. I love him. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to bring up, um, you know, watching this Keaton documentary, and we've we've discussed Orson Welles and Martin Scorsese and the Coen Brothers here, and these are all artists that just pioneered film, made made absolute pieces of art in film, and almost all of them, on the in the twilight of their careers. In the case of Scorsese, they can't get funding; the studios reject them. They're scrambling. You know, Coen Brothers and Scorsese have to go to Netflix. Buster Keaton was was stuck with other people making garbage films, you know, and we all know, you know, Orson Welles is a tragic uh, twilight of his career. And I just, I don't know what question I'm asking here, but it just boggles my mind that these absolute, they're the greatest at what they do. And even they are, are fighting a battle at the end that they shouldn't have to be fighting. It's all uphill for them. And, and I just heard a, a recently an interview with John Waters talking about just this, that he, he could not make films today. Um, certainly not the films that he made prior to this, but he said he had, he, he, there's no way anybody would fund him. David Lynch is the same way. And, and David Lynch is you know, now thinking about going back to more TV. It's, it's more of a, of a free option to work. And we don't have that studio system that we had uh, in, in the Hollywood um, golden age. So it's something much different that's happening now. Yeah. Um, yes. It's a lot less, I think, and I could be very wrong about this, but I think it's a lot less interested in, in art for art's sake. And more than ever, it's interested in, in the bottom line and making yeah. money and selling Coca-Colas. Oh, yeah. And that, that's why so many films are just so loud and repetitive. Right. Yeah. It's about product placement, right? I mean, how many times can we see products in, in any, you know, name a film? And, and you know, it's all, it's a commercial. Sure, sure. It's funny you mention that today. I was, uh, I was killing some time today and I was, I uh, turned on the Disney Channel. I turned on Avengers Endgame. And you know how they have the warning graphic language violence yeah. label? It said warning, scenes of violence and product placement. I never really. Oh, Serious? They're warning us that there might be product placement. That's yeah. I I've noticed because, like you, Bill, I've been watching a lot of films uh, now that we're under quarantine. And one thing that I'm noticing is, you know, in when they're when they're saying like, you know, uh, warning, nudity language. Now, one of those categories is smoking. Yeah, <laughs> I've, I've been noticing that too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just... So the general warning. Scenes of violence and peril, uh, man getting stabbed with a sword. <laughs> Strong <Agatha>. physical comedy. <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I, I think producers, studio moguls, they always wanted to make money. Yeah. But I, I think it's just obviously been snowballing since the early, you know, the days of Louis B. Mayer, and now we're just in a you know, a situation where, uh, you know, film companies are basically owned by, uh, you know, by the banks, by yeah. stockholders. And, and, you know, obviously your, <laughs> your number one, uh, your number one goal is to please the, please the stockholders, that it, you know, it, with, with certain um, film productions, right? And uh, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to be a, a good business person, right, 
an astute business individual. The, the film, the film business is not necessarily a sure thing. Yeah. So not that, not that anything's a sure thing, but um, there are ways to make it a sure thing. I guess if you really uh, strategize when it comes to filmmaking and it, it, then it comes, it comes down to a formula, right? You need to have certain, you know, there's, there are charts. I'm sure there are graphs that will tell you, all right, if Tom Hanks is in this movie, you're going to make X amount of dollars. If you pair him with this actress, you're going to make X amount of dollars. If you pair them up with this director, you're going to make And you know, if it takes place here or and then that's, you know, that's where we're at. So. Um, I was watching this piece the other day on how, um, and this ties into this, how CGI has actually declined in the last 20 years. If you look at Jurassic park hmm. compared to some of the modern sequences, they, they, the objects don't have weight. They don't have substance. They don't obey the laws of physics. And so they look terrible. But to speak to that point, they said that studios are demanding so much CGI that these companies can't spend the time to make it look good. And they're just cranking it out. And then that yeah. ties back into a film like The General or any of Buster Keaton's films where those stunts that you're seeing or those trains that are crashing are real. Yeah. And, yep. you know, he's doing those things. I mean, yeah, obviously he's doing his own stunts, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean he's he's sitting on front of that train, knocking those railroad ties out of the way. He's falling off of those big bicycles, and you know the, the Star Wars prequels were were heavily criticized for that. That they they were so CGI heavy that you know in the last three films they tried to go back to a little bit more. Uh, I think they call them practical effects. Yeah, yeah. You know the the T Rex yeah. in uh, Jurassic Park was more practical effect than CGI. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think no matter how good the CGI gets, I think you know you're you, you may not be able to tell the difference. So something in you, I think, senses the falseness of it. Yeah. You know, I, I think it might be subconscious, but I think you you can't entirely reproduce certain things. You know, it's just it's just impossible. So, um, but it's cheaper in, in a lot of cases to just sort of instead of um, make models or, or real sets to just sort of uh, get. CG artists to uh, make it virtually and it, it, it saves a lot of money. And that's exactly what producers and uh, the money men want to want to hear. So, yeah. And, and, and let's face it, we know that the, you know, the, um, the history of money and art <laughs> is uh, it go all the way back to what, you know, um, since arts art has existed or, or you know, the relationship to the patrons, right. That, you know, even Shakespeare needed a patron. Right. You know, the Sistine Chapel and yeah. you know, Da Vinci, Michelangelo being paid to do a lot of what they did. And, uh, you know, it's there, there are pros and cons to that. And it just seems, you know, you met, we you mentioned Walt, you know, Wells and uh, Keaton eventually just sort of being being alienated. And I think it's just I think there's something within a lot of uh, a lot of artists who just sort of resent that and they you know, they, they might work within the system for a while within the case of Wells. I don't know if you, you can even make the case that he ever worked within it. Right. And, uh, eventually the, the system just stops, uh, cooperating and, and has no interest. And, um, it really speaks to, to how we think about genius as well. It's it's not it's not a far um, throw to talk about you know why why are so many of these people alcoholics and or on drugs or have you know immense personal problems 
Yeah. Um, there's something about that lonely road that the genius has to walk. And so the, the, the directors that you mentioned, film is highly collaborative. It's not like writing a novel. And yet these are, I don't think they're very collaborative directors. You know, they're, they're auteurs in, the, in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. Wells has said once that, you know, he was asked, and I'm paraphrasing the question, why don't you just simply sort of compromise your vision a little bit and work within the system and sort of do what John, John Houston, yeah, his career doing, you know, and uh, make great films within the context, within the paradigm of, of the Hollywood system. And Wells responded again, I'm paraphrasing. He says, basically my films just simply don't work when they're collaborative yeah. um, or when they are compromised. He says, they just simply fall flat. And I guess, the proof of that might be, uh, and I, I don't you know, want to get into it's a Buster Keaton show, but uh, you know we have the Magnificent Ambersons where the ending was yeah. basically reshot by the the assistant director, and it, you can tell exactly. It's almost like seeing the seams in a in a, a great garment, you know, and and you sort of see like, oh wow, okay, this is where Wells stopped, <laughs> and this is where the the assistant it's director other people, yeah, yeah, in post production. And uh, am I right by saying the general was basically his the career ender for the proper career ender uh, for? Uh, no, I think it gained in actually I think it, it gained in popularity. Uh, I may be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure it ended up making money. Um, no, but I mean, is it, he didn't uh, wasn't the, wasn't it the last film that he had complete control of? And uh, you know, listeners might want to chime in on that one but I, I yeah I, I think I read that it might be it might have been his last Buster Keaton film and then after that he sort of um was signed to a contract where he had to basically be part of a the system the, the studio system by playing Buster Keaton so instead of being Buster Keaton he played Buster Keaton after that yeah he was not the maestro after the general right. he was uh, I think I know that documentary I saw spoke to this and how how um they were putting so many restraints on, but I wasn't sure if it was the general or if the general was just part of a couple of pictures, but it, it did happen just like you said, and, and you may very well have been the general. They were, you know, the audacity of this production, the scale and scope of it. I think they, they were balking at it. I think they wanted to make him like, you know, justice again, this trope, like let's drum up another adventure for Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton goes to the, yeah goes to the opera, Buster Keaton meets Frankenstein, you know, stuff like that, you know, and, and that's that what, that wasn't, that wasn't what he intended to do, you know. No, he did some writing. There was some writing on some pretty prominent things and they paired him with Jimmy Durante. Hmm. Uh, and when the sound came along and Keaton hated it because Durante was a verbal comedian. Yeah. And Keaton just hated every moment of that. Yeah. He yeah. didn't dislike Durante. He just disliked the pairing. That form, Yeah. Well, we, before we started recording, I, I, I was mentioning how uh, late in life Keaton worked with Samuel Beckett uh, on Beckett's film. And, and it's really, really, um, it's a riveting piece, um, completely silent, um, although not silent. Uh, but uh, Buster Keaton doesn't say anything, but it's really, really, it shows the genius that he is as an actor. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I, but I'm going to definitely have to see that. To go back to an earlier point, and I'm, I'm really asking this in, in all sincerity, do we put someone like Buster Keaton in that category of some of those directors that, that were mentioned? 
And I suppose we'd have to include Chaplin in that as well. Sure. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, I think that, um, you know, for years, again, I, I, don't, I never liked the idea of like, okay, let's debate Chaplin versus right. Buster King. I just, they, did, yeah. they, they did different things. Yep. Kind of like the Stones and the Beatles, you know, they yep. did different things. They're both great. But it seems like uh, Keaton is, is winning right now in terms of, you know, I hate to use the term winning, but he's, he seemed to have uh, come up um, as the critic's darling as of late it's it seems that, that Chaplin was winning that for for a while but now it seems like it's swung towards uh towards Keaton so I guess my question is why why yeah. why is he winning now I think well I want to answer first Andrews and then then your question Andrew I think yes um and I think the reason ties into what Bill was saying I think the more and more that people are looking at his films they're seeing how influential they were, though not necessarily credit. He was not as popular his time as Chaplin. Chaplin, right. and you know, again, Bill says apples and oranges to different types of geniuses. But I think in terms of moving film forward, um, I think more and more connections are being made to offshoots of Keaton at this point, which, you know, and it'll, it'll likely fade and mm-hmm. as times change. But I think that's what's happening. I think they're connecting like, oh, he, he was one of the first to do this or, or, you know, and, and so I agree that he is, should be amongst yeah. the stars uh, as mm-hmm. a director and that, that what might be why the, the modern world is, is rethinking their take on him. Chaplin, Chaplin was, uh, you know, he's not necessarily known for his technical prowess as a filmmaker, you, you, but um, he was once asked, I guess, apparently, you know, why don't you have any interesting shots of cinematography in your, in your films? And uh, his response was, I don't need interesting shots. I'm interesting. <laughs> Typical for Chaplin, yeah. But I disagree. I mean, I, him moving through the, the gears in, in modern times in the machines, I think there is, there's mm-hmm. a lot of fantastic stuff. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I agree. So, um, yeah, I, I, I would put Chaplin in the, you know, the uh, Mount Olympus of, uh, of yeah. great directors, you know, and He's, uh, he's, he was a game changer. He really was. So I'm, I'm really, um, really happy to get the discussion tonight. But when, when we see these, these films and we see these bits um, and we go, oh, yeah, I've seen that fall before. I've seen that take before. But <laughs> they were doing it for the first time. Right. They, were the, they were the epicenter of, of pretty much all that we see today. And, they, you know, Andrew made this point earlier. You know, they were kind of making it up as they go. And so I think that's a rare that's a rare kind of, of genius when you're, when you're setting the gold standard from the Absolutely. start. Yep. 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 So that's see great. the film. If you have not seen it. Absolutely. Yes. yes. Yeah. Show it to your kids. Yeah. Little kids, little kids love watching him fling himself around. It's free on YouTube as well. You know, I think a lot, if I'm not mistaken, I believe it's in the, public domain I think so <laughs> like a lot of great silent films you can actually uh in fact i'm using a lot of silent films in my film studies class now that we're doing remote learning because so many of them are, are available and free mm-hmm. like nosferatu which yeah. by the way if you've never seen that from start to finish that's astonishing some yeah. of the some of the camera work it's like holy smoke this was even possible back then but i mean in terms of lighting and and I love the interpretation of Dracula, you know, just this 
almost zombie-like creature where mm. he's almost always portrayed as this debonair, suave <laughs> lady killer. <laughs> but he's like dragging himself around and it just makes it infinitely more creepy. But that's another show, isn't it? <laughs> I, but I would urge people not just to watch The General, but, but watch the shorts. Watch uh, Steamboat mm-hmm. Bill and some of his ambitious works and uh, and watch the documentaries and watch the Beckett film. I mean, just you'd be in for a treat if you looked into Keaton. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And uh, when you do, if you do, please uh, join our discussion on Facebook and uh, we'd love to uh, hear from you and, and get your point of view, your interpretation of, uh, of the general. And um, before Zoom cuts us off for the last time this evening, I'd like to thank uh, Andrew and Walt for uh, coming together on this lovely Thursday quarantined evening. <laughs> and, and thank you guys for uh, letting us talk about this film this this one's personal it's a good to me. one. Yeah. No, my our my pleasure. I'm sure it was. Uh, I just I loved you know just sort of settling down midweek and just saying you know what I mean. How often do we get to say you know what I'm going to watch a silent yeah. movie? You know, <laughs> right. sorry, honey. Um, I need the TV. <laughs> I'm going to watch myself a silent film tonight, and that's uh, no, cool. I had a lot. Of, I had a blast talking about this. So, all right, guys. Thanks a lot, and. Um, for all the listeners, thanks for joining us, and we will uh, see you here your next time on the Classroom Critics. Take care. Bye.